In today's episode, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Andrew Locke, a world-renowned physiotherapist and an absolute expert when it comes to rehabilitation and injury. All content on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. None of the content provided is intended to diagnose, treat or relieve any medical health conditions and is not intended as a substitute for advice provided by your physician. You should always consult a healthcare professional before adopting any diet and lifestyle changes. Hi, I'm Donna Aston, and welcome to my Body Masterclass. As a nutritionist for the last 30-odd years, I've had the opportunity to work with some extraordinary health professionals, clients, and colleagues. During this podcast series, I'm going to share with you their experience, as well as mine, help you to sort fact from fiction, and hopefully inspire you to live your best life. My Body Masterclass is like the instruction manual that you didn't receive for your body until now. Dr. Andrew Locke is an international physiotherapist, education provider, and world-class strength rehab professional. Andrew works and presents across the globe and has advised and consulted with a diverse range of patients, ranging from royalty and celebrities to elite level athletes. He has also worked with law enforcement and emergency services, including the Australian Defence Force. In addition to this, he is the rehabilitation consultant to many of the world's strongest athletes and their coaches. I can tell you that I've experienced this firsthand with Andrew. He's kept my body in check for over 30 years. Let's see what he can help you with today. Well, Today, I actually wanted to have a little bit of a chat about um, a personal injury and bone density issue that I've had. And I am going to introduce you today to a really special guest, um, Dr. Andrew Locke. And we're going to have a little chat to him about injuries, about training and strength. And I'm just going to start by telling you a little bit about the injury that I encountered along the way. So, Having been someone who has trained most of my adult life, um, I sort of went down the route of having a, a fairly severe um, pain issue with my lower back and just out of sheer desperation, I think, ended up going down the medical route, which I wouldn't ordinarily do, and trying to treat the pain. And so I went to a doctor who, you know, the first thing was rest and anti-inflammatory drugs. The next step to that was having cortisone injected uh, under a scanner into a couple of vertebrae or a couple of facet joints, which didn't work. The next step was having a denervation treatment under a CT scan, which was possibly the most painful thing I have ever encountered in my entire life. And all as it did was make my right heel go numb and did not do anything to actually help my back. So I finally came to my senses and thought, I don't know what I'm doing going down this medical route because I know better. And that's when I sought out help from the person that I knew could help me, and that was Andrew Locke. Hello, Andrew. And here I am. And there I was, and what a lucky time that I was in town, eh? Thank goodness for you because I don't I think the next step for me would have been surgery that's what was being spoken about and I know you once said to me 
the only back I can't really treat is one that has been surgically interfered with. Too many times. <laughs> Too many times. So I love the explanation that you gave me. First of all, I think I turned up with my MRIs and I think you might have thrown them on the floor and ignored them and actually looked at me and spoke to me about what I was experiencing, which well, no one had done yet. <laughs> of course, the first question I ever ask of anybody is, what's your problem? And that's when people tend to bring out their MRI scans. And that's why I say, that's not your problem. I want to know what your problem is. What is your, What are you experiencing? Why is it you need to see me? I don't need a diagnosis. What is it that you're experiencing? And you went through the classic of, let's treat the symptom. And the symptom was pain. Pain is a symptom. It's not a cause. So the route that was taken was, you're trying to treat pain. And the medical crew were trying to treat pain. They were trying to figure if there was a causative structure to it, but they weren't addressing why would that structure be a problem in the first place. So the whole approach I take from that is, tell me about yourself. What are you experiencing? And I've had some amazing patients who have had, just like you did, the most amazing disconnect between the treatment and what the person was telling me. You were very much like a professional wrestler from the WWE that I was treating once, and similar to yourself. He was a person whose problems were, at worst, really, lying down and trying to get moving. Once moving, it wasn't as bad. So the problem is lying down, trying to get moving. So what treatment did he get? Traction. Well, that's lying down, pulling him apart. It just makes you worse. So there was the people in the white coats who were looking at the scan that said, you've got some disc issues. And you've had people looking at a scan saying, you had some facet joint issues. But no one was really listening to the story that you were telling them was, this is my real problem, and that's why the problem is so important to define. So the medical route tends to be, what's your pain? Now, treating pain is like putting a horse in front behind the cart. The cause you've got to get. The cause, the horse, you've got to treat that. It's the horse that pulls the cart, not the other way around. So, of course, the cart being the pain, the horse being the cause. Let's find out and stick them in the right order. Let's find the cause. Let's not chase the pain. What I loved about it was you said it's like having, um, you know, three people working in a factory. <laughs> There's the core, the glutes and my back. Mm. And basically my core and my glutes had gone on vacation and left my back doing the work of all three. And all the medical treatment was trying to stop my back from working, which obviously is not the best solution. Ever heard anyone say, I've got a bad back? <laughs> That's the problem, is the back usually isn't bad. The bad things are everything that's not working. Your back in f probably usually is going to be your strength. The back is finally tired of doing all that work by itself. It's not your problem. It's not your weakness. And in fact, it's been the thing that's carried you through. So now let's address the things that aren't working there. What's silent? What's not talking? What's down the beach having a, getting a tan? Yeah. It's usually going to be the abs and the glutes. Now we bring back two powerful mechanisms to help you back and suddenly, hmm, you are not having pain anymore. The difference it made just to, to know that, and, and, the, and I'm talking from somebody who has done strength training since my 20s. So mm. I, I've done it for a really long time, as you know, and I've done it at a, a fairly extreme level for a long time. So it's not like I'm not experienced at it. I've trained other people most of my life. So 
for me to lose confidence in what my body could do because of the pain and never having the fear of never wanting to feel that again, I can only imagine how difficult it would be for someone who doesn't have my experience. And mm. honestly, the only thing that really convinced me to go back into training properly was knowing that my bone density was starting to diminish and knowing that I really needed, because of my age, because of many other factors and not training, I needed to get back into it. And you're always looking good whenever I see you. It doesn't matter whether I see you when you're 20, 30, 40, 50. You're always looking good. But underneath there was a bone density issue that was starting to manifest. From the outside, you wouldn't tell. So it was important that you actually did have that addressed. And it's super important a lot of people don't realise that we are hunter-gatherers. Our actual genetics, our makeup of us as homo sapiens well, we're 400,000 years old, effectively. And that structure, which took us to survival out on the savannah, having to hunt and climb and run, is not what the 21st century body does. So here's this body that took four and a half million years to adapt to upright walking, running, climbing, movement, loads. And suddenly we're in a chair from the time we hit kindergarten until pretty much... The final day, you're in the resting nursing home and you're in the cloud chair. That's not what our bodies are supposed to do. And that's why we probably gravitate towards the fitness world, you and I. We loved to embrace what our bodies naturally were supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you're probably more inclined after, I've, I mean, I've worked with you for on and off for years. Forever. You've kept me in one <laughs> yeah. piece for a long time. I remember, you know, doing fitness competitions and, you know, I think I tore my rotator cuff once a few weeks out and you yeah. came to the gym and trained with me and got me through. So you've always been my go-to to sort of keep my body in check. Mm. And I know that you're probably going to favour more strengthening than stretching and, and the mobility side of Infinitely. things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because everyone tends to think that inflexibility or stretching is the answer. It's an answer, but I don't know to what. <laughs> <laughs> we always said strength is usually the answer. Weakness, yes. weakness never is the answer. So with flexibility, flexibility I almost put separate from mobility. Mm. There's a thought if we pursue it back to its start, it really is stability enables you to move. Well, stability's got to be created through strength. So if you want to get flexibility and mobility, you actually have to have stability, and stability is going to come from strength. So strength has to underpin what your body will give you. If you want to become more mobile, you have to have your body comfortable to give you that mobility. So we have to do strengthening work to enable us to get the optimal mobility. Now, passive stretching of muscle is not going to give us anything that we can fundamentally apply unless we base it in strength and mobility, and then you can put your flexibility last. Mm. So you've got to be strong first, mobile joints second, flexibility of muscles will be third on that list. Okay. And then you're building a pyramid that starts from a very strong base. Mm. Great. So when it comes to, I'm asked on a daily basis, is Pilates or yoga considered strength or weight training? <laughs> well, there's only one problem there in that it almost be in what the definition of Pilates is because dear Joseph Pilates died in the 1960s and he never really trademarked it. And as a result, you can walk your dog down the street and say you're doing Pilates. You can brush your teeth and say you're doing teeth Pilates. 
there's a problem with the definition of what Pilates truly would be. And you could almost say you've got to go to back to a traditional Pilates approach, his movement patterns, you'd have to say the reformer beds he sold, but they're not going to make you strong on two feet as a human being. People ask me about Pilates, is it okay to do? Well, if you're not going to do anything else, but you're going to do that, then go do it. But reasonably, if you can buy a 16 kilogram kettlebell, I can give you better exercises that will transfer to better bone density that will make you a healthier person than lying on a reformer bed will. But if you're going to do it, at least you're doing something. I think it's really tricky for people who have never been to a gym and find it a really intimidating environment. Mm. I'm actually taking a a group of women, older women like me, um, to a gym in a few weeks' time just to show them how everything works and to get them familiar with what that feels like and to Mm. show them what a workout actually is because I think if you don't know what to do, I think that's part of the problem is just walking into that gym environment and feeling intimidated. Um, I think most people find, though, that once they actually walk into the gym, that that's not the case at all. Would you agree? Oh, we're always always apprehensive about something we're not familiar with. And I think that's a natural human thing to do. So it's okay. Yeah, it's good to be able to have someone who will take you to the gym environment, but it's got to be the right one for your or your introduction. Yeah, that's one. It's very funny that one of the most intimidating people I probably would have met, who I work with over in um, Ohio, uh, Matt Wenning, holds at least countless almost records. But to watch him work with people, he doesn't even let them get a barbell for six months. It's all about stability work, and yet here's one of these people you think, wow, he's lifted so many thousands of pounds and kilograms. But watching work with people, no, you don't deserve to pick up a bar yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's often that regression back from what people have been doing. People are thinking that that's what it starts like. No, it's like well, you want to be a professional golfer. Well, you know what? It's probably a good idea to get a coach who actually has a record of success and they will start you off with some very simple movements to practice. Yeah. Get good at your basics. The gym shouldn't be an intimidating environment. It's a place to learn to move. And when you've learned to move, you put a little bit of load on top of that. Absolutely. I guess the scary thing at the moment is social media and Mm. how much Instagram workouts have taken off and how many people are on social media media sort of proclaiming that they're the expert. I know back in my day when I started training, it was always, you know, you had almost done an apprenticeship yourself by training yourself, by perhaps doing some sort of competitions. It might have been a bodybuilding or it might have been fitness, but you'd actually had a lot of time in training. I actually became a trainer because I spent years training in the gym. I transformed my body quite substantially and people started coming to me and saying, what did you do? How did you do that? Can you help me? And so it just grew organically from that. Whereas now you can listen to an ad on the radio that, are you sick of sitting in the office? Why don't you do a a training course to become a personal trainer and spend all day having fun in the gym? And so there's often people doing these, you know, few weeks course to be a trainer that really have barely trained themselves, which is frightening. And then social media has sort of amplified that. Are there any particular workouts or styles of those that you've seen that you just wish didn't exist? It's almost like you say there is how long, as a question to you, how long was it from the first time you first walked into a gym that you actually competed? How long was it for you, Donna? 
Oh, for me, I, it was probably four years. Four years? Yeah. Yeah, that's 200 weeks of actually playing an apprenticeship to, mm. oh, okay, my first comp. And then to get to a pro level, how long was that after that first touching of a weight? Probably at least five or six years. Yeah. So you're really putting a lot of time together. Almost, we say it takes 10 years to get to a point where you've earned the right to be able to tell other people about your journey. Mm. And there's the marker for anything if a person's going to follow it. If you're going to look at a person who's giving advice, do they have a record of success with athletes, with other people at a top level too? There are so many different competitions now. Anyone can become a pro on the weekend of anything. They give them out you know, for nothing. But if you want to look at the people who are training the better athletes and maybe themselves have had a record of time of success, okay, there's the voice we start to listen to, is those people who present a score on the board, not somebody who hasn't got a score on the board. And social media is a lot about finance, so you're allowed to advertise that you're an expert. No one's going to check and no one's going to ask what your record is. Mm. So as a consumer, you have to be so discerning about what we must take our advice from. Someone like yourself, we've got decades of experience. Yeah, decades of success. This is where you get your depth of knowledge from. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it, it's based more on, um, you know, someone having, like for women in particular, someone just having a nice figure mm. um, is enough to sort of sell their whatever they're peddling, whether it be nutrition or exercise or whatever it might be. So, you know, that's not necessarily um, a, a good marker for, for their credentials, I suppose. It isn't. <laughs> that's where they need to have the record on the board that they actually have a lot of people who have success. Mm, absolutely. And they, as a coach, who does that coach learn off? Mm. I've got a wonderful fellow in um, Miami called Aldo who runs Iron University. Aldo, I don't think he ever sleeps. He can't. His brain works too hard. But I've talked to Aldo and spent time with him. And, yeah, he trained under Charles Glass. Well, Charles Glass was one of the great competitors from the 1980s. Charles Glass trained people up until now. So he's been in Gold's gym every day. Well, Aldo learned from, from Charles. Oh, Aldo also learned from Dorian Yates. So you've got a coach there who's learned from the best coaches. Mm. And that's what I look for. I look for the lineage too. Who did you learn from? Mm. Who's your mentors? Mm, and absolutely. that's a lot for us, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you've got such a depth of people you've worked with, especially in your health field, your mm. your overall wanting to make people healthier. Mm. You've met some amazing people. We both have. Yeah, have we? <laughs> <laughs> we both have. Comes with all the years behind us, I suppose. Um, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see in regards to strength training in the gym? Too much load too early. Yeah. Realistically, if a person wants to... Mm, become stronger. Now, stronger, the word strong just means relative to what? Mm. You know, if you want to be strong enough to pick up your shopping at the supermarket and feel comfortable with it, going to Bunnings perhaps and being able to handle things, well, they're sort of tasks that you can replicate in a gym. Mm. You probably aren't going to bench press too much. You don't need to do that. It's not a very fundamental movement, but it's just a sporting movement people do and they like to consider comparing themselves to others. But being able to pick a bar up off the ground and put it back down safely, it's a good skill to have. There are so many versions of being able to squat down and stand up that we can do lots of things. We don't have to put the bar on the back. There's lots of equipment we can use. Essentially, I prefer something that requires some stability as well because gym equipment essentially is made to take away any stability requirement for you and allow you to push using just the muscle. 
that doesn't work too well in nature. So it's good to do natural things with a barbell, a dumbbell, a kettlebell. And the coaching of those movements takes a bit of work. Now, Bruce Lee once said, I don't fear the man who has 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And welcome to what it takes to become effectively understanding an exercise. We sort of say the 10,000 repetition mark is what it takes to attain a skill. Mm. So if you want to go in and you want to do a deadlift, well, don't try and max out. We often say it takes you 18 months to deserve the right to actually see how heavy you can lift. A very good friend of mine, Eddie Cohen, 10-time world champion, says, you haven't earned the right to test out your max for three years. Respect the gym, enjoy the process and learn. That's what it is. I remember the first time I went to a, a serious gym and I, I it was Mike's gym in Dandenong. How's that? And... It was the most frightening place I had ever seen. And mm. as I was, a girlfriend actually dragged me there. And as we were walking up, it was it was peak time at, you know, seven o'clock at night. And oh, as Monday. we were walking, yeah, <laughs> as we were walking up to the front door, the glass was all fogged up and there was, and, and condensation was dripping down the glass. Yeah. And all I could hear was clanging and grunting. And I was petrified. <laughs> I soon realised after I got in there that none of these, I was one of the only females in there. And I mm. soon realised after walking in there that none of the guys were looking at me. They were too busy looking at themselves. Absolutely, and yeah. in fact, when they realised I was trying to train, they would come over and correct me and help me because they could see that I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And they did. And so they genuinely just helped me. And so I found that environment, not at all intimidating once I had made the step of going in there. And then I realised after a few months that my body actually started to change Like because I was actually training properly. I'd done gyms and had the attention span of a goldfish because I wasn't really, I was just using a few machines and didn't know what I was doing. But once I started training properly, and my, my goal was when I walked in the door, I saw a girl squatting with what I saw was the biggest plate on either side. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I thought, I want to be able to do that. And she could also do chin-ups. Mm. And I thought, I, I really need to be able to do that. That was really impressive. So I would go and hang from the chin-up bar and grimace and try to bend my arms. And I, I couldn't even bend my elbow slightly, let alone do a chin-up when mm. I started. And I started with a bar. The Olympic bar weighed a tonne. Mm. When I started, and with so nothing on kilos. it, it's yeah, a lot. With nothing on it, and you probably weighed forty when you walked in, so it was half your body weight. So you know, it was it was a huge challenge, and I mm. didn't actually realise how hard it was. But to have a goal like that, and to see somebody else doing it that was a female, I thought, well, if she can do it, then I can do it. And it took me probably a good two years until I could do those two things. Um, of of training, you know, but the progression was fun. I enjoyed it. I felt my body training, I, I, I like growing and getting stronger. And it was just an amazing achievement when I managed to be able to do those things. <laughs> it is. Mm. How many people can do a pull up or a chin up? Not many. Not many. It's a really good one. Yeah. And it's that interesting environment that you experienced was a gym that was not a there was no fitness first. There was no crunches. There was, there was no, no lattes. Life. There was no, no fashion parade. First there was none of it. There was none of that. <laughs> and they were good places to train in. And those sort of places still exist around. Fortunately, there's few of them. But they're going to be probably 
a better introduction than going to a commercial gym because commercial gyms are basically places I find you don't get the same friendships and community that you will get from going to a local place which has been around for a fair bit longer and the people are part of a community. I enjoy the community aspects. There's a gym I go to in Miami called the Battle Axe Gym and it's great. There's no air conditioning. It's in Miami. It's 40 <laughs> plus degrees and there's equipment everywhere, but you've never seen such community and friendship in a place that's the size of two garages and it's beautiful. Everyone loves being there and no, it's not the most comfortable place to be in, but my goodness, you've got all sorts of people there and it's amazing. It's probably got close to a 50% female ratio of girls who are coming in and they're learning how to lift with strong people. Yeah, Lovely community. It was the same when I, I lived years ago in the Bahamas for a couple of years and I found one of those gyms there. Same thing. It mm. was, you know, 40 degrees and 100% humidity most days. There was no air conditioning and it was old school. You know, the, the equipment was really old school, but it's the best. I mean, that stuff never falls apart. It, it goes forever. And the people there, as you said, it was a great community and because I started at one of those gyms, I, I love it. Everyone that knows me knows mm. that I'm in my element. The The grungier it is and the more serious it is, the more I feel at home. The more community it really is, isn't it? Yeah. That's the beauty of it. You realise that you are becoming part of a community which you don't get from the chain gyms. You can't get it from those places. You walk into the community-style gyms and everybody smiles. Everyone's got a good look. There's the occasional crazy, crazy, but you get them everywhere. <laughs> we always appreciate them and thank them for their contribution. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, I'd, I'd like people to know that, that, you know, the gyms that you think may be the most intimidating, it's actually the other way around. So and much the other way around. You'll yeah. be usually embraced quite well yeah. by a culture that's been a generated for a long period of time. Mm. I mean, I do train, um, you know, some of the chain gyms quite often when I've got no time. And there wouldn't be a person there whose eye has ever been caught. No one smiles. Everyone's in their own little world. That may suit some people, and it certainly does. Mm. But if you're really struggling to feel comfortable, you'll actually feel more comfortable going to a place where you'll get some better coaching. Mm. Absolutely agree with you. So can you describe a little bit uh, more about the type of work that you do and how you actually got into this line oh, of work? I'm so lucky. We call it the gift of injury. So for me, one of the things was I'm very skilled with my handwork. So as a as a professional, as a manipulative physiotherapist, I was thumbs of steel. Thumbs of I steel can vouch until for those. I broke. <laughs> <laughs> and one day, I just pressed on a patient's back, and I walked out and said to the receptionist, "That's it. Don't book another patient in. That's the end of my career." Because I knew immediately I'd got carpometacarpal arthritis. I know my conditions pretty quickly. I know exactly what it was. I know there's no coming back from it as a manual therapist. So I had the good fortune that I paid my professional insurance as an um, income protection. So I could say, okay, I'm finished. Went through all the boards, all the surgeons looked at me and they agreed. I'm totally and permanently disabled. So I'm probably still labelled totally and permanently disabled. Well, that's nice. Now I'm getting paid not to go to work because I paid my insurance. And then the opportunity rose that I was asked perhaps to write a book on strength training and that's where I suddenly realized I can convert totally back to what I loved most which was using strength training to make people better. Now it took me away from the manual therapy world so suddenly I have the gift of injury which means I've been released from having to be hands-on patients 
and now I can intellectually dissect what a person's problem is from a movement pattern. And that's all I ever do anymore. I don't touch people at all. I may test a, a movement, a position, I may test out a joint, but realistically, the, the solution to lower back problems, the solution to shoulder problems, comes from finding the weakness, and that doesn't mean you put your hands on something and rub it. Doesn't mean you stick needles in it, dry needles, wet needles, whatever needles you want to call them, doesn't cup it, it doesn't matter. Those things are only treating the symptom. So it went back to my first love, I'm suddenly released, here I am, the gift of injury. I can now pursue a career in which the things I love, putting exercise and figuring out where a problem person's weaknesses are and strengthening them. And that's the career movement. So everything opens up from opportunities and opportunities are often the ending of other things. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. I know, I mean, you know, as a physical therapist, mm. um, you know, you're amazing, but I've, I've found that um, you have a very unique way of assessing somebody's biomechanics. And I always say, mm. nobody knows biomechanics like you do. Like, it's pretty <laughs> incredible. And, you know, when I came to you with my injury, I could barely get on the floor. Mm. I think I couldn't even do a plank properly. No, it I couldn't, was tough. I couldn't do much at all. Everything had kind of just shut down. Mm. And then I'd become weak as a result of it shutting down and me being frightened of the pain. And I think that's the thing that lost my confidence. And I had started to accept that I just now had to move this way. Like I would try to squat down to do something <laughs> and I was holding onto the wall. Yeah. You know, like I, I, and I just thought, well, this is now, this is me, this is my back injury. But mm. when I started getting strong again with your advice and giving me the confidence to start doing some of the rehab that I did with you, my back started getting so much better. Your back was happy. It had some friends to start to work with. Incredible. And the skill that really comes with that is knowing how to regress a problem to a person's level. Mm. So certainly the gluteals are important. Yes, a deadlift will use your gluteals, but it's going to use your back a lot. So is that an appropriate exercise for a back that's overworked? No. So we have to be able to strip back the anatomy and know mm. what we're doing. The beauty about it is it's actually really easy. Once you know what you're doing, it's so easy to analyse a problem. Human beings only move in three directions, forward, backward, side to side, and rotation. Your joints forward, backwards, side to side, and rotation. Mm. The muscles that supply those movements, you just have to know which ones supply the forward, backward, or the side to side, and the rotation. Now, if you can know the muscles that do the movements and you can correct the weakness and find it, then you can create an exercise that strengthens that muscle to correct that movement that makes the person painless. So there's a beauty of it. It really is refining it back to it's not tough to do, it just takes a bit of clarity to be able to see how a person moves. Like when you bend down to the wall, okay, why are you doing that? Ah, oh, well, you're using your back too much. How about we strengthen up your glutes now? How about we teach you to brace? Hmm, now let's do that again. Oh, that's easier. And all that is is bringing in the muscles that we know support the other muscles. And there's only three sorts of tissues in the human body, realistically, when we look at these things. As movement goes, passive tissues, they're your ligaments and your bones and your discs. Active tissues are the things that are your muscles and the nervous system that drives them. Well, all you've got to do is then know what structure has been aggravated and how you can use one of those other things to fix it. Three directions, three, three parts of the body, and you will solve pretty much 99.9% .9 of all problems. 
Andrew and I have been having such a great chat that we've decided we need to split this into two episodes. So make sure you look out for part two.